This is episode 37 with Lauren Gregg, the things you can learn about life from living in a van. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories. If you want to change, I think a lot of people get tied to the fact that they're worried about making the wrong change or heading down the wrong path. It's like, just head down any path and it's going to lead you in a certain direction. If you know about Lauren Gregg, you'd never guess that she wasn't a cyclist growing up. She actually identified as an artistic musician type and didn't identify as an athlete at all. It wasn't until she decided to grab her dad's dusty bike out of the garage and start mountain biking on a whim that turned her into an athlete. The simple yet life-changing decision to start mountain biking has enabled Lauren to carve her own path. Starting as a cross-country racer and taking on Sea Otter Classic as her first race, she moved up through the ranks and eventually found a love for enduro. And for those of you who aren't familiar with enduro, enduro is an interesting sport. I've actually dabbled in it a little bit and I really enjoyed it. You ride a bigger travel mountain bike and there's a huge course that you have to complete. You have to endure the fatigue of riding all the climbs. Sometimes we walk them, but usually you have to ride them because there can be a time penalty if you don't make it to the next downhill in time. But only certain descents are timed. With a passion for travel and a fortuitous relationship with Ford, Lauren decided to move into a sprinter van and travel around the United States. The Sprinter van was her year-round home for two and a half years. That's right, she lived in a van for two and a half years, even in the wintertime, and she lived alone. Imagine what that would be like. In the show, we talk about Lauren's path to becoming a professional cyclist. And in fact, something that shocked me was one day some old racer guy told Lauren while she was working at a bike shop that you'll never be able to make a living as a female mountain biker and that it's not possible. He said, it's just something that's not ever going to happen. And that was game on for Lauren and boy, did she prove him wrong. We talk about the important life lessons that she's learned from living alone in her van, the logistics of actually living in a van, where you even park the thing, the concept of what home means, the importance of community and the interesting and positive life changes that she is going through right now. I absolutely love following Lauren and all of her adventures, and I just really think that she's a really cool person, and this conversation in particular was one of my favorites. I felt really inspired and really connected after I got to speak with Lauren. Before we get started, I want to mention a forward-thinking company that benefits people like us called Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for athletes and health-conscious people like us. You know how car insurance companies give a discount for a good driving record? Well, Health IQ can get people lower rates through qualifying with their lifestyle quizzes on their website. You can also get additional savings by submitting actual data like your race results or even your Strava. I wonder if you get additional discounts for being a KOM. Anyway, check out healthiq.com slash Sonia or mention the promo code Sonia when you talk to a Health IQ agent. All right, let's get into it with Lauren Gregg. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Lauren Gregg. Hey, Sonia. How's it going? Good. It's so fun to reconnect with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think last time I saw you was at Innerbike. It was breakfast at Interbike. <laughs> breakfast at Interbike, breakfast of champions. Exactly. Well, I've been wanting to have you on the podcast forever. And actually, when I started the podcast, I thought, like, Lauren needs to come on this show. So thanks so much for taking the time. 
Oh, I'm excited to finally uh, be on here with you. Yeah, so I really want to share your story with all of our listeners because you've led a really cool life and I started following you a couple years ago and I've just been watching your journey. So like if you can talk about your background a little bit, like how you got into biking and, and what that whole experience has been like, that'd be great. Yeah. So yeah, I've been riding now, racing for about 10 years. I, I grew up in Los Angeles, so like in suburban LA. So uh -huh. it definitely wasn't kind of a part of my life growing up at all. I was like an art student and didn't really know what I wanted to do and sort of discovered bikes serendipitously. I was just looking to get some exercise and discovered kind of all the trails outside of LA. That really got me out of the city and it introduced me to the outdoors and I just fell in love with it right away and started racing. And that was about... I can't believe it. That was like 10 years ago now. <laughs> I know. It's so weird. Like when people ask me, I've been racing for 14 years and it just seems fake. Like it doesn't seem like it's actually been that long. And it's that's that's like almost half my life, you know? So it's like, what yeah. the heck? And I, I, it makes you feel old in a way. But um, you mentioned that you were into art growing up. And I think this is really interesting because a lot of cyclists these days, like most of us didn't grow up riding bikes and I'm in the same category. And it's interesting to hear how people identified themselves like as kids and in high school. So can you talk more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely would not have considered myself an athlete or, you know, anything like that. I would definitely identify. I played a lot of music in high school. I wanted to be a musician. And then I went to art school and thought I wanted to be an artist. And really didn't do anything outside or physical at all until I discovered mountain biking. So that definitely was a huge shift for me coming. I realized I couldn't, you know, music wasn't really a sustainable career choice. I, I decided I didn't want to be a musician, didn't know what I wanted to do. And then I found bikes at kind of just the right time. And it totally changed the direction of my life. That's so cool. Like what, what kind of music did you play? Um, I play the mandolin and the guitar. So oh, like wow. a lot of and stuff but in high school I played more we, I was just I was in a, a rock band <laughs> just like party rock that's awesome do, do you still play like play music you know I took a break for a long time when I really was focusing on biking but I've recently brought back I still have my instruments so I restrung my guitar and I'm slowly starting to, to play again which is good cool maybe eventually we'll all get to hear you playing guitar that'd be awesome <laughs> maybe <laughs> <laughs> so like how did you find biking because all of us find have found it in different ways and most people didn't just wake up one morning and say I'm just gonna start mountain biking right well my dad he bought an old specialized like years and years ago and he rode it maybe once and it was just in our garage all growing up and it was untouched and this was kind of I was just going through kind of a little young life crisis where I didn't want to be an artist. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was kind of looking for a new hobby or a new direction. And on a whim, I just kind of took it out and rode the trails right. And I didn't even I didn't even realize we're right behind the house that I grew up in, up in the hills in Los Angeles. And immediately I was just like, this is something that, I'm, that I think I could really love. And kind of took off from there. I, I Googled mountain bike races and signed up for Sea Otter. Because it sounded like it would be small and unintimidating. And <laughs> it sounded like a good one to start. I registered for the wrong category. I had no idea what it was like I was doing. And I showed up and kind of instantly was introduced to the whole mountain bike culture and the industry. And everyone was super friendly and welcoming and encouraging. And it just kind of took it took off from there. That's so funny. So you actually did wake up one morning on a whim and decide, I'm just going to go mountain biking. That's, that's hilarious. 
It was, yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful that, that I t- sort of discovered it by accident. Yeah, it's really interesting because, like, there's a lot of things that in our lives where we think, oh, maybe I'll just try that and maybe I won't try that. And a lot of times people are afraid to try something. But especially for both of us, like, if we didn't try mountain biking, our lives would be in a completely different place. Absolutely. I often think, like, I wonder where I would be right now if I hadn't discovered mountain biking. Like, what trajectory my life would have taken? And I think it would have been completely different. So I'm really, yeah, me really, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for those of you listening who aren't familiar with Sea Otter, it's basically like one of the biggest bike events in North America. So it's really funny, Lauren, that you're like, oh, I just wanted to go do this little race because when you go, it's like you come, it's at Laguna Seca Raceway and you come in and there's basically bike industry companies everywhere. It's like a rainbow sea of tents and all these different races going on. And the energy there is is crazy. Yeah, I, I really liked out that that's the one that I happened to click on when I Googled mountain bike races. It was the one that was close to me that I was able to get to, and it ended up really igniting igniting my passion for it. So did you ride your dad's bike? I did. I, I showed up, and I was like, I'm on a $1,000 mountain bike. I'm going to be on the nicest bike there. I was in, like, Nikes and showed up on the start line with, like, everyone in kits. Every, I wasn't even clipped in on flats for the cross country race and I just I was like I've been riding quite a bit I'm gonna do well here and just got absolutely smoked (laughs) so it opened my eyes up to this whole world that I didn't even know was there like people were actually riding and training and taking it seriously and it looked it looked super fun so I wanted to be a part of it a lot of times people who are getting into mountain biking they're nervous they're nervous about falling down like they have all these reservations about getting started And it's interesting because both you and I, when we started mountain biking, like we weren't thinking about any of that stuff, really. We just were like, this seems cool. I'm going to go do this. So for you personally, I think that there's a level of confidence that you have whenever you start a sport like mountain biking, especially on your own. So where do you think that confidence came from? You know, I think it was really fueled by the fact that I was looking for the next step for me. It was like this time of transition and... I had been so committed to that the path of art and music and kind of losing that and decided I wanted to find something else. It gave me that extra energy. Like I really want to do something that I love. I want to find that next thing that I really want to do. And that kind of, that overshadowed any fears or anything for me because I was so excited by it. I think it was just the excitement, honestly, of finding something that made me feel that way, that made me feel so free and that got me outside. That got me out of the city. There were just so many things about it that were almost distracting because it was so exciting that I didn't really think about any, the injuries or the things that could typically hold people back, I guess. Yeah. And I love that point because a lot of times, and I'm sure on social media, you've gotten emails like this too. It's like people want to transition in their life from something they're doing to something else. And they're looking for inspiration or a reason or just a path to follow. So it's really neat that you say that being in transition can actually give you the confidence to take that next step. I think it's true. It's like, if you want to change, I think a lot of people get tied to the fact that they're worried about making the wrong change or heading down the wrong path. It's like, just head down any path. And it's going to lead you in a certain direction. And, you know, I, I originally wanted to race down. I had, you know, different plans for myself than what actually happened. But as long as you kind of stay flexible and take whatever path is laid in front of you, you know, it, there's no wrong way to go. If it's something that excites you, it's like, just go for it. And then you can switch as you go. You can make adjustments to make it fit your life. I think people are too tied to like, is this the right thing to do? It's like, just, just do it. And then you can see as you go. You won't know unless you do it. 
if it's the right thing. Yeah, like you said, it doesn't always turn out exactly the way that you like initially planned. And this is, it's been the same for me. Like you start down a path and then the path sort of evolves as you go. And, and it does take flexibility and also just being okay with that. Exactly. Yeah. It's like if you don't tie yourself too tightly to a like goal at the end, if it's just more about the process and about finding something that makes you stoked, then it doesn't matter if your if your plans shift or things don't go as planned. Like you can kind of just take it as it comes. And that gives you a lot more freedom than being like steadfast. I'm going towards this specific goal and nothing else. That's where I think people can run into to problems. So, so, yeah, speaking of stoked, so when I first learned about Lauren Gregg, you were an enduro racer. So how did you get from flat pedals, racing the sea otter, to racing enduro? So I started out in cross country, but what had really got me stoked about racing was downhill. I watched the World Cup. I, you know, watched all the movies about free riders and downhill and gravity. And that's what initially I wanted to do, but I didn't have a downhill bike. I only had my dad's cross country bike. And so... It was kind of always in the back of my mind. I'm going to race downhill. I want to race downhill. But it just took me in this different direction. I found a lot of success in cross country. So I ended up racing cross country for five years, never even getting a downhill bike. (laughs) And I really enjoyed it. (laughs) But at the end of five years, I was just looking for another looking for a change. And there was a sea otter race that had enduro for the first year. So I Mm -hmm. thought, all right, I'm going to I'm going to try it out. And I think my passion for cross country was waning a little bit. And then this really just reignited the spark. And enduro was such a fun format. And I'd always enjoyed, you know, descending and downhill more than climbing necessarily or the fitness heavy aspect of cross country. So it just was a really good fit and got me excited. I was almost thinking about kind of stepping back from racing. And then this was like full steam ahead once I tried enduro. It really got me excited again. That's cool. Yeah, like a new challenge and then... Yeah, enduro, you're rewarded for technical ability. And when you get better, it's like you get to see that immediately. Whereas it's hard to track with fitness if you're getting a little bit faster. It's it's really hard to tell. But if you're riding a really technical section and you're crushing it, that's really obvious. It's true. Yeah, that that's definitely that progression. It happens so much faster, so much more visibly in enduro. Because, I mean, coming from cross country, I was like terrified of drops. That was my thing. I couldn't even dropping, you know, more than a couple feet was just like a huge barrier for me. And so there were these really glaring holes in my technical abilities that I was able to overcome switching over to enduro. It was really challenging. Mm-hmm. Definitely. It was really scary. And the first year or two, um, it was hard to make that transition, but it was very gratifying kind of being able to check those things off my list and do things that really, really scared me. Yeah, so it's interesting because like a lot of people say, oh, I just want to get better at technical riding. Can you give me some advice or how do I go faster? And people think that you have to feel afraid and just like overcome being afraid to go faster, which is not the case. So like what advice would you give to people who are trying to get better at technical riding? I think my mindset in the first couple of years was that I just got to get over it and just push past the fear and, and hit the and, you know hit things. And it resulted in a lot of crashes and a lot of injuries. <laughs> and, you know, it definitely it'll get you from point A to point B. And sometimes it's successful, but it's not kind of a lasting or sustainable way to do it. Really working up incrementally is the way that I found made the lasting changes in my riding. When I just hit something and just get over the fear, I don't even really know what I'm doing. I'm just clo- basically closing my eyes and going off of whatever it is. But if I'm really mindful about each step and... I can go into it confidently, knowing that my skills have progressed up to that point. 
you know, starting small, even smaller than you think you need to just repetitive, small increments is the thing that really changed my riding. So even if I want to hit that big drop over there, starting on the small ones and slowly and incrementally, one of the things that I talk to some riders about is like the things that kids do in the park, that's the thing to do to, to make your skills better. If you just see a kid doing skids over and over and over and over again, a lot of times as adults or as, you know, oh, I'm a pro athlete, I don't need to do that. Those repetitive things are the things that help, you know, trying to go out and do a wheelie for an hour in a parking lot. Those are the things that help, <laughs> that help me the most. Yeah, I had Ryan Leach on the show and he has his uh, his course, Ryan Leach Connection. And I've actually signed up for it because my goal this year is to learn how to properly bunny hop. Nice. And, and it's, it's frustrating and hard to like break it down and, and to just like and, and you get tired, like just mentally tired from trying. So, yeah, it's, it's humbling. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think there were some things like bunny hopping. I'd gotten to a certain point in my career. And it was almost a pride thing. Like, I don't need to go spend an hour in the park learning how to bunny hop. But in reality, I, I absolutely did. I needed to do those, those small things to make those big changes. And so rather than going out and trying to ride a double black trail or something that terrifies me, it was never in those moments that I improved. It was in the moments where I was in the park doing the small things, like putting in the, the work to then be able to transfer it onto the trail. Because I found you don't learn when you're scared. You learn in like a controlled environment where you can be very repetitive. Yeah, you learn that you just barely survived and that you probably don't want to do that again. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> you get to the bottom and you're like, I just sort of went into a blackout, but I made, it, I made it to the bottom somehow, but I don't know how. I have no concept of what I did to make it here. I just know that I, I narrowly escaped death, which is not... <laughs> valuable because <laughs> I played music growing up too so like playing music is a repetitive thing where you have to practice over and over like the same measures or, or, or riff or, or whatever type of music you're playing and you can apply that to cycling or to any other thing like it's the it's the idea of practice so do you think that doing that your whole life with all the art and music actually helped you in your cycling yeah I would say so I I was not too much. I wasn't a great practicer with with music. I'll be honest. This is this is a skill that I learned later on in life. I kind of just would play by ear, and I think that that kind of diligence and everything is something that cycling actually taught me. I don't think that I necessarily had that going into it, and that's something that I saw the benefit that it would give. And so I think that cycling is really what what brought that into my life. And like, how was the identity shift for you? Because when you're an artist and a musician and now you're an athlete and you were never an athlete before, like how did that sort of come to fruition in your brain and how did you re-identify yourself? I would say I, I just felt really ready for a change. I would kind of see where music led people. And I, I wasn't, like I said, I never practiced that much. I wasn't a great musician. I was kind of in love with the idea of being a musician. Mm -hmm. And... You know, my my folks were so excited. Oh, great. You don't want to be a musician anymore. What are you going to do? Professional mountain biker. Like, that's not better. Like, that's probably even worse. <laughs> but I don't know. I just, I kind of always had this drive that I wanted to do something a little bit different, especially when I was younger, that I wanted to go down kind of a, a, a different path. And the lifestyle of a musician is something that I love so much. And then I was able to see the lifestyle of professional, you know, action sports athletes and mountain bikers and realize that that's actually more what I wanted. Being outside, that freedom, that kind of life that they were living was really attractive to me, kind of in the same way that the life of a musician was attractive to me before. 
So, like, when you're racing, you're doing enduro, you transitioned. Were you working at the time, or were you, were you like, fully sponsored? How did you make things go? Because everybody has a different story as, like, a mountain biker because, yeah, it's hard to make it as an athlete. Really? Yeah, definitely is. When I first started out, I didn't know how hard it would be necessarily. <laughs> but I remember I was working uh, at a shop, and there was an old racer guy. And I remember him saying like, you'll never be able to make a living as a female mountain biker. It's just not possible. There's just no way that you could make enough money. And it's just not something that's ever going to happen. And that was like game on for me. Like that's all I needed to hear. Like I am going to prove you wrong. And it took me like eight, seven, eight years to actually prove him wrong because it, it was true at that time that like, I'm sure, you know, Sonia, there's it's difficult to get funding and to make ends meet, especially as a female athlete. So I had many jobs all through my race career. I would work really hard during the winter, you know, odd jobs, have two or three jobs over the winter and then race during the summer and try to go into debt, pay off the bills during the winter and kind of just repeating that cycle until finally when I made the transition to Enduro, there was a little bit more support there and the industry was changing and I was finally able to, to get a little bit of support and to start racing full time. But yeah, after like eight years of racing and put putting myself through each race season. That's awesome. But like when you switched to enduro, you weren't necessarily like well versed in enduro. So did it take you some time to figure out how things worked? And then before you got fully sponsored as an enduro rider, was there like a, a lag period? You know, I would say that uh, enduro was really exciting in the industry. Right when I, you know, it was kind of a, a lucky break that I came in at this time when companies were really fired up about it. And at the same time, people were really fired up about women's cycling and people were trying to bring more women into the sport and companies had really shifted their focus onto trying to get more women out there. And so it, I just happened to come into it right at the right time where people were interested in sponsoring that sport and sponsoring more women. And so I got pretty lucky there in my first season to be able to pick up some sponsors that I'd been trying to get in cross country for years and years and was never, never able to get. So mm-hmm. I felt very lucky. <laughs> Yeah, man, that feeling of getting that must have just been amazing. Like, yeah, like I'm finally like making it. Yeah, it was really exciting. It was finally, you know, because after years and years, you start to question, is this going to ever work? Is this going to ever pan out? How many more years is it going to take before I am able to find some support? And I was kind of waiting right in that area where I was like, is this, am I just pushing and am I being too stubborn or is there actually a light at the end of the tunnel? And so to to have things kind of fall into place was really, really good. Yeah. And I think that like a lot of athletes and female athletes end up, they give up too soon. And if you look around, a lot of the women who are successful now in the sport, they've been at it for a long time and it took a long time to get there. So I think that's a great example and a great story of, do you just have to keep at it? Absolutely. The best advice I think I ever got early in my race career was someone told me the the only thing that you have to do to be successful is just make it through the bad years. That's the only, if you just stick around year after year, if you're able to, you know, there's going to be years where you don't win any races or you're sick or you have an injury. And so many people, I think, pull out of the sport after that one bad year. You know, maybe they had some, some first years that they're really successful. And then that first bad year, it pushes them out of the sport. And all you have to do is stick around. And this is such a great industry with, you know, like, like, you know, you make so many connections after you've been here year after year that success is available here if you're willing to stick around and to really kind of lay roots in this, in this industry. Yeah. So I want to move on to the van, like van life. So what, when did you move into a van and what made you decide to do that? So, yeah, 
pretty crazy. I, I moved into the van. Well, so I, I was traveling on the road and racing for years and years. And each season I'd be on the road more and more living out of suitcases and camping and, um, was starting to get kind of sick of that definitely. And would see people more and more living in their vans or traveling in their vans, having these converted RVs. And it seemed really appealing to me. So I reached out to Ford and was able to, to work out a deal with them. And they, I was able to get a van, which I was super stoked about. That was like one of the highlights of my career is getting the van. And, you know, I, I kind of flirted with the idea of being in a van, but hadn't made any hard decisions. And then once Ford made the offer... Like, okay, it's go time. Like, I either have to do this or not do this. Like, am I really doing this? Am I really going to move into a van? And once they, once I signed the contract with them, it was, I moved in like two and a half years ago, which was a wild experience, kind of getting rid of all my stuff and building out the van and getting it all set up to live in. And my original plan was to live in the van for the summer to do a project for them and, you know, move back into an apartment or whatever at the end of the summer and ended up being two and a half years in the van, which is crazy. Wow. Yeah. So what made you decide to just keep going? Like, well, I'm just going to keep living in this thing. You know, eventually it became, you know, it became really comfortable and it was a lot easier after I'd gotten used to it and kind of gotten the swing of things. It was a lot easier than I had anticipated. And so there wasn't really any compelling reason for me to go back to paying rent or for me to go back to living in one spot because I was I was really enjoying it a lot yeah so like the process of getting rid of stuff to move into a van like how did you actually decide what you needed to keep with you and what you decided that you didn't need anymore that was definitely a slow process when I first moved into the van I had a storage I had a a garage here in Reno and then I had some stuff in my parents house kind of I didn't get rid of everything I put everything that I thought I would really need in the van and I kept all the other things that I thought I would need, you know, in the future or whatever in this storage room. And it just took some time being without that stuff slowly to realize like, well, I haven't used it in a year. I haven't used it in a year and a half. You know, do I really need these things? And so slowly and slowly all my belongings were pared down until pretty much everything of any significance just fit into the van. (laughs) That's so awesome. Cause like, yeah, you always hear about people who, and myself included, like trying to get rid of stuff, trying to reduce clutter, but yeah, moving into a van would be (laughs) an extreme way to do it. But yeah, like all of us like the idea of living with less stuff and simplicity and the ideas of simplicity. So yeah, I want to kind of transition into talking about life lessons from living in the van. So like van life lessons and simplicity seems to be one of the, the themes that I've seen on your social media and just from this conversation. So what else do you want to tell people about simplicity and how that helps you in your life? Yeah, I would definitely say when I first moved into the van, I kind of thought, oh, this is going to be a great life experience. I'll have a lot of memories. I get to travel to all these cool places. But really, it was more radical of a shift than I had anticipated. Like it really like radically shifted my perspective on life and a lot of things, you know, it taught me a lot of things that I'm really grateful for. Definitely simplicity is one of the number one things. It just changes the experience changed my perspective on what my priorities are and what I actually need to live and what I need to be happy. And I think before I lived in the van, I had a lot of preconceptions about what I would need to live like a comfortable and fulfilling life. And then once you live without those things, you realize that 
it's so much more about what's going on inside your own head. There's pretty much nothing exterior around you that can make you happy. And that includes things, all of the objects that you own. You know, five years ago, I would have said, I definitely need a bathroom to be happy. Like that's a minimum thing that I'm going to need. And I lived without a bathroom for two and a half years. I lived, you know, with very limited running water. And it just makes you realize like living in the van, you have, I would say almost no control over your exterior environment. You don't have a lot of control over where you're going to sleep or what you're going to do, but you have all of the control over what's going on inside of you. And that your perspective on things, you have so much more control over your happiness that you realize that like nothing exterior is going to make you happy. Yeah, that's so inspiring. And it's so awesome to hear that from you. And that's something that I've really noticed traveling and racing in third world countries is that you'll see that people don't have anything and some of them have to go outside to go to the bathroom. And the way that some of us, some of the races, you actually live like the locals. Like and I did a race in the Sahara Desert where you slept in these like carpet tents in the middle of the desert with nothing around and no internet, no cell phone, no nothing. And, and you really do learn that you don't need that stuff. But what you did is like, it's, that's way different than just going and doing it for a week at a bike race. Like this was your life. So, I mean, there, I'm sure there was challenges along the way. Like the first question I would have, if I thought about moving into a van is, well, where am I going to park the thing? So like, how, how do you even know where you're allowed to park? So BLM land, uh, Bureau of Land Management, that's public land. So we all own those lands here in the United States. And it's free to camp in any spot. There's no designated camping spots. You can just camp pretty much anywhere out there for 14 days at a time. Mm -hmm. So primarily where I stayed was out, out in the woods. You know, I, I spent very little time in urban areas. Like in the city, it's very hard to find a place to park. You're typically kind of stealth camping on a, on a city street you're not supposed to be on. And that's kind of when the situation could get more stressful. But I would just pretty much stay, stay out in the woods, out in the desert, and park, park on BLM land. And you were by yourself, like, most of the time? Yeah, pretty much for the whole whole stint of it, I was uh, traveling solo. Wow, so did you ever get nervous as, like, a female being alone in the woods? A little bit. I, I'm i happy to say that I didn't run into you know, people always ask me what was the scariest or, or weirdest thing that happened while I was in the van, and I really had a great experience. Like, I didn't really run into any situations that made me feel uncomfortable, I have some, some male friends that live on the road, and you definitely have to be cognizant of the fact that as a woman, and the situation is a little bit different. So if someone you know saw me camping by myself, I would move, typically. Like if someone would drive down the road, or if, mm -hmm. if I felt like someone knew that I was there by myself, I would move. But other than that, like it wasn't, you know, the, the first few months, I think... I would get nervous. And even sometimes like when I was a seasoned living in the van, you hear a noise outside of the van, you get scared because you're out in the woods. But typically I had a really good experience and um, everybody that I ran into was really friendly and nice. Yeah. So like the solitude of being alone a lot of the time, I think that for a lot of people that would be really intimidating because you just have your own company and you probably don't have like the internet or devices to, to distract you and keep you company. So what would you say to people about that solitude and how has that contributed to your life? Yeah, definitely. I would say that solitude and, and being out there by myself was kind of one of the defining characteristics of living in the van. I've always kind of considered myself a loner, spent a lot of time on my own. I'm an only child. So I thought, oh, it's not going to it's not going to bother me. But there ended up being a lot of alone time, a lot of you know nights spent out in the van with you know no cell phone service or just no one to talk to. And 
you really get comfortable with yourself, I would say. And it kind of, it did highlight the fact that I realized kind of in modern society, we don't really get a lot of time to our ourselves to contemplate, to be unplugged. And it made me value that a lot more, definitely. And it made me realize that a lot of people, I think, are scared of time by themselves. And there's this hard transition period where you don't really know what to think about or what you're going to do if you don't have a phone or you know a computer to look through or Netflix to watch. But once you get over that initial roadblock and you kind of get comfortable with yourself, it's a super valuable way to kind of contemplate what's going on in your life, to get to know yourself better. I will say... I don't think I knew who I really was alone with no people around until I spent that much time by myself. I would find myself like, oh, this is who I really am. These are the real thoughts that I'm having, not influenced by other people or influenced by media that I'm watching. Like, this is who I really am. I didn't really know that until I was able to spend that time with myself. So it's something that I'm really grateful for that I didn't even anticipate happening. Yeah. And I've seen pictures of you journaling or videos. So how has journaling contributed to that journey? I definitely think that keeping record of my thoughts and that's that was the best way that I was that I found to kind of have a dialogue with myself. Once I started writing, a lot of times I wouldn't have a set topic that I wanted to write about. I would just start writing and that's the way that I found I was able to kind of tap into my unconscious or the things that were going on a deeper level. I, I gained a lot of insight by journaling. Just as I was writing, I would realize things and then and then continue writing. So I found that to be really valuable. And a lot of times I'd say, oh, I don't really have anything to write about. So I just kind of start scribbling or writing about my day, whatever it is. And then that would turn into realizations that were that ended up being valuable that now I have recorded, which have been cool to like look back and be able to read and check out. Nice. So do you think that taking that time to really be comfortable with who you are and creating your own expectations without any external influences, like how did that affect you as a racer? I would say that it did positive and negative things for my racing. It definitely helped me get into a better mental space during the races. And then it also, it shook me up so much that my priorities had been so focused on racing for so many years, but I was being pulled in a lot of different directions as well while I was on the road. I was kind of focused more internally and focused. My plan was to be focused completely on my race career while I was out there, but I ended up being kind of pulled in different directions and realizing that there were other things that I hadn't explored or hadn't, it kind of took some of my focus away from racing, but it also definitely helped me be able to get into a better mental space during the races, especially the races I was scared in being able to calm myself down and, you know, meditating a lot out in the van that helped a lot racing. I'd say meditating is like the number one thing I did to help my racing for sure. Cool. Did you do it using like headspace or did you have another way that you were doing it? I started with Headspace and I was doing Headspace every day and that was really valuable. And once I kind of, I think, evolved past Headspace, I read some books. Mindfulness in Plain English was one of the best meditation books that I I started out with that really lays it out really clearly and concisely. And so now I just do it kind of on my own, which has been really good too, because you can play around with it a little bit more than Headspace. So I think Headspace is a great place to start. Cool. And yeah, I think that's interesting because in enduro racing, like I've dabbled dabbled a little bit in it and everything happens so fast and it's so important to like when you make a mistake to not dwell on your mistake because there's a bunch of things coming at you really fast. So do you think that that meditation helped in your racing to be able to leave the mistakes in the past? Definitely. Yeah. And like I was saying before, 
one of the realizations that you kind of have to take to heart in order to be comfortable or just survive when you're living on the road is that you can't control anything exterior. And that goes for racing too. If it's pouring rain or if you, you know, if the conditions are bad, whatever it is, I think as athletes, we really get in our head about those things like, Oh, the stage tomorrow that has that thing on it or whatever it is if the rain clouds are coming in. I'm not good racing in the mud. If you, can kind of shut down anything that's going on outside of yourself and only focus on what's going on in your own head and focus on your breathing and getting your body ready, then you can instinctually react to what's coming up in front of you. And that's when I think, especially that's when I perform the best. If I'm not thinking about how do I ride in the rain? How do I, how am I supposed to hit this turn? If we just, if you let your instincts kick in, which I think you can only, only really do by focusing on your interior space and just kind of blacking out everything else that's going on around you. So yeah, you think that's the best way to deal with fear as well? Because like, it's easy to be afraid knowing that the course is different and that you have to ride it that way. Yeah, exactly. It's it's just, you can decide whether or not you want to be scared and whether or not you think that fear is going to, a certain amount of fear can be useful, you know, to make you make strategic decisions, but you can decide how much fear is going to be useful to me, how much fear is serving me, and then how much fear is holding me back. And any fear that's going to be holding you back, you realize you have the ability to choose to let go of that and to not hold on to that, even though it feels like there is no like it feels like it's you have no control over it. In reality, you do have control over it. You can decide exactly how much fear you want to let affect you and how much you want to get rid of. Yeah. And like digging a little bit deeper into this journey and uh, the time you spent by yourself and figuring out who you are. Like with racing, there's a lot of things that happen. Like people who have tried races, everything gets built up and all the character traits tend to come out even more. They get magnified. Right. So, and I I think that a lot of people's attitudes and opinions when they're racing comes down to their ego and their idea of self-worth. And if that self-worth and ego are being threatened, and I think that that affects the way that we think about ourselves, it affects the way that we treat other people. So how did that journey that you went on change your idea of self-worth? It, it, maybe it didn't change it at all, but if it, how did it change it and how did that help you in your life? Yeah, I would definitely say that kind of before this experience, my self-worth was tied to my racing. It was the most important thing to me and that no one else put that on me about myself. Mm-hmm. It's how I identified myself was as a racer. And I think that put a lot of pressure on racing And in other areas of my life, racing came first. And so if something was interfering with my racing, it would drive me crazy. And if I wasn't racing well or if I had an injury, then it toyed with my self-worth and my identity. But once you spend enough time, I think, by yourself, or once you spend enough time kind of contemplating the wholeness of who you are, you realize that each one of these little pieces doesn't define you. And it alleviated a lot of that pressure on racing. I realized like it doesn't matter how good I do in the race, in the grand scheme of things for myself as, as a person. Like, you know, I, I can feel good about doing well in a race. I can love training. I can be proud of myself when I do do well. But it doesn't change anything about who I am, how I perform on one day, you know, how I do in one race. And so I think that actually that helped me enjoy the races a lot more moving forward. It, it took a lot of that pressure off. And it also helped me treat the people around me better with more respect and not be so tunnel vision that I have to do well at these races or who am I if I'm not a good racer. It kind of took that pressure away and not really myself and on the people around me and my team. 
That's amazing. I, I love that. So like then you started doing EWS or did EWS start when you moved into the van? Like when did that come into the timeline? Um, it was that I was a year into living in the van when I started uh, the EWS. And how was that really different from what you were doing to begin with? EWS was a huge transition, definitely. They, um, the Enduro World Series, the races are on a whole different level than any domestic Enduros that I'd ever done. I'd never raced internationally, so my first race was overseas in New Zealand and Tasmania. So it was a cool experience. That's always something that I kind of have dreamed to do, is fly to a different country and, and race my bike on somewhere exotic that I've never been. So it was definitely kind of the culmination of what I had been dreaming about ever since I started racing, which was really exciting, but definitely a lot different than anything that I'd done before. So I was kind of thrown into a experience. I had no idea what to expect. And it was very, very shocking for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like I've seen, I haven't actually raced in EWS, but I've ridden like the course in Whistler and that's like that it, it's hard because I feel like they're they're blurring the line between something you need a downhill bike for and something that you just that's it's safe to ride on like an enduro bike. Absolutely, I was my first few races, but like Tasmania, I was shocked at how technical it was, and I would have definitely preferred to be on a downhill bike. <laughs> so it was it was a great experience, and it really pushed me outside of my comfort zone in a way that I hadn't been pushed since I first started riding. I think I was kind of you know, on, on the slow progression. And there were a few things here and there that really scared me. But then the EWS was like head and shoulders above anything that I'd done since I had first started riding. So I almost felt like le- relearning how to ride a bike, being able to get down those courses. Wow. In a way, that's kind of cool, though, because it's a good reminder that no matter how long we're doing a sport, there's always something to learn. Exactly. Yeah. So it was a great, uh, a good experience to be put in that situation where I was like, I have to figure out a way to make it through these races, you know, that I, I've never seen anything like it in my life before. So it took a little bit of mental gymnastics, I think, to not just blow up and like, and and, uh, on top of it, my first year that it was under a wet series or whatever, (laughs) pouring rain every single race. And I'm from California and I have really never raced in the rain. Like I maybe had one or two races ever in the rain under my belt. And so it was just like, it was a really hard learning curve, learning how to ride in the rain. I can totally relate to that. (laughs) Yeah. And so that tested this, this whole idea I had come, you know, I had, okay, I can control what's going on inside of me and not exterior. And then it was like, okay, we'll try when it's muddy and you're trying to race, like see if you can not let the exterior affect you. And so it was like, definitely a challenging way to try to put that into practice. And I definitely was not successful right off the bat. The rain and the conditions were like totally throwing me off and driving me crazy. And I didn't know what to do. And then I had to recircle back like, okay, you know how to deal with this. You know, you actually need to put it into practice now, even in this really high stress situation. I had that exact same experience at Trans BC Enduro Stage Race. It was like my second Enduro ever. And BC is crazy steep. And I said to myself, like, oh, well, as long as it doesn't rain, I'll be fine. Like, I'm comfortable as long as it's not wet. And it rained the entire time. Exactly. And I just remember being, like, terrified and being like, what am I going to even do? And is this even going to be fun? But I came out of it a way better rider and realizing that, like, I was a lot more capable than I actually gave myself credit for. And that's a really cool thing about those situations is, yeah, like, I crashed a lot. 
but I also learned a lot. And, and I think that going at it from that lens of like, okay, like don't focus on how many times I fell down, but focus on how many things that I actually survived. And now knowing that you're able to do that in the future is, is pretty cool. Yeah. It's really cool to talk to other women who have experienced that kind of like talk, you know, hearing you overcoming your fears and just going for it and being able to get that feeling, you know, it's such a empowering feeling to overcome those fears and to be able to focus on the positive and to make it through these situations, even if they don't go like we planned to kind of overcome the fear and make it through. I just think that it's such an empowering thing. And I, I don't know, it's just great to connect with more and more women in the industry that, that are doing these things that are overcoming their fears and doing these kind of races. Yeah. And speaking of connecting in the industry, like I know you've done a lot of mentoring for up and comer cyclists, mountain bikers. And that's really, that's really cool that you've, that you've been giving back in that way. And like, what has that brought to your life and what tools do you think you've really helped give other people? That's been one of the most, definitely the gratifying things that I've done with my career. I started coaching a high school team in Santa Cruz and I loved working with the high schoolers. They're just so stoked and you can watch them. You know, I worked with the program for three years and they come in as freshmen and they can't even ride off a curb and they're really timid. And, you know, you can see that empowerment through cycling in the high schoolers, especially they get more confident on the bike. They get more confident in themselves. And I wish that I had found cycling when I was in high school. So I just really love working with that age group and I think anytime, you know, sometimes I'm sure you get this as well. Cycling feels like a job and it's kind of like a chore and it gets stressful. And it's such a good way reconnecting with young riders and getting new people on bikes is such a great way to kind of reignite your excitement for it and realize like this is something super fun. This is something to be excited about, not something to be stressed out about. And so working, if anyone has the ability to volunteer their local NICA league, I would highly recommend it. So much fun. And it's something that's given me a lot. And then that it was able to transition into helping more and more kids in that age group. If they do want to make cycling a profession, trying to help them navigate that and, and use my industry contacts to kind of help get their foot in the door because they're so fired up about cycling, but there's not a really lot of information out there about how to turn it into a career. So I think supporting our young, young riders in that is going to help the sport grow. Cool. Yeah. That's so, that's so awesome. And like what you said, it's, a lot of us take ourselves way too seriously sometimes and I'm in that boat and I try really hard not to, but it's hard whenever you're so focused on something and you're working hard and like just reminding yourself to have fun and to remind yourself like we do this because we love it, not because we are carrying some burden, you know? Exactly. Yeah. As a, as a racer, it's so hard that you have to take it seriously. That's the only way you can be successful. So I think working with the younger athletes is a great way to just kind of put it back into perspective when we get so serious in our training, uh, working with the kids is super fun. Cool. Well, I want to go back to the van and I want to ask you about the concept of home, because I know for me, like I don't live in a van, but I travel constantly and people are always like, oh, I bet you just can't wait to get home. And if you start making home this this place where only now you can relax when you're home, I just, I don't know. My concept of home is a little bit weird. So I was just wondering what your concept of home is because you were living in a van, driving around everywhere and you didn't really have an anchor dropped anywhere. Yeah. So it definitely was a very shocking feeling when I realized like where it feels like home, the van, like that's like my van feels like my bedroom. I don't have anywhere else in the world that feels more like home than my van. 
remember thinking like, oh my God, have I lost my mind officially? <laughs> because my home is a car. Um, yeah, definitely. There was no stability living in the van, which was a great experience because it kind of just shakes everything up. And I really loved not having a home for a while. Once I got comfortable in the van and I was totally committed to this experience of living on the road, I enjoyed it a lot and realized like, okay, I don't need this idea of home. Like, yes, there's some comforts that come with being really familiar with a certain space, but I don't need that. I have the whole world as my home. I have, you know, all the outdoors as my home. And so I was really comfortable with that and kind of settling into that. But as, as the months went on and after, after a couple of years, I did realize like slowly I realized something was missing. Mm-hmm. I thought, is it this idea of home or what is it that I'm kind of craving here? Because I'm so happy with my life in the van and I don't really, you know, want necessarily a house or anything like that. What is it that I'm missing? And I was able to realize like the thing that was missing in my life was community, uh-huh. relationships with people. That's really what this whole experience brought into light as being like the most thing for happiness. Like that is the element of home that I realized having a community and having people around me that I care about and being able to cultivate relationships with people and see people regularly. That's the only part of home that I think I actually need. And so that it was a good way to kind of put that into light. Like I said, I always kind of considered myself a loner, but I realized like this is one area in my life that I haven't cultivated enough that the experience in the van has really illuminated for me and made me realize like what I need is that, is that community and those relationships. It doesn't matter where I am. I don't have to have a physical location, but a community is something that we need as, as people. And that's like one of the most fulfilling things that you can have. Cool. A sense of community is super important. And if anyone's read Dan Buettner's Blue Zones and John Robbins Healthy at 100, these are about communities where people regularly live past age 100 or to age 100 in a healthy way. And diet is just one of the factors. But another humongous factor is socialization and a sense of community. So everything you just said really does fit into that. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that that's the concept of home that now moving forward in my life, I can kind of latch on to is that, you know, I don't need a house, or I don't need a physical address, but living on my own was great. And I, I really appreciate all the time alone that I had. But moving forward, I do know that's something that I need in my life and something that I need out of whatever home I, I decide to be in is connections with people. Yeah. So speaking of home, you just bought a house. I did. Just crazy. I'm in my, uh, my home right now, which is super <laughs> wild after being in the van, but being in the van for two years now, having a physical address and a house to work on is, I still haven't fully like it hasn't sunk in yet. Yeah. So like, what's that been like? Because you were moving around a lot. And now you're in one place, and now like probably you're around more like digital, digital devices a lot more. Like it's a major change. So how have you been adapting to that? Yes, yeah, so I've been in here just what about just about a month now, or a little bit under a month since the holidays. And it's definitely been a big transition. The house is still like not unpacked and it's still kind of a disaster because we're in the middle of remodeling. So it feels almost like the van, which is, <laughs> uh, but I, I don't know. I, I just think that I was able, now there are all these things that I took for granted. That I'm so grateful for like every time that I, you know, have a shower to use or having this home base, 
I'm really excited about it. And I was able to kind of come into a place that I might not have chosen before living in the van. But Mm -hmm. like we talked about before, my priorities were a lot different. So Mm -hmm. it opened me up to be able to buy this house. That was like a big time fixer upper, but it still uh, still has more luxury than the van. So I'm pretty comfortable in here. That's cool. Yeah. And like it's like you can appreciate all those things that most of us take for granted on a daily basis, like being able to flush, go go sit down on a toilet and flush it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Things I don't think I would have ever thought twice about, like things that I would have taken for granted my whole life. Now I can I can be grateful for, which is is pretty nice. It definitely makes the experience of even being in this uh, this dirty old house a lot nicer, a lot more enjoyable. Awesome. Cool. Is there anything that you want to share with people about like living in the van or your transition to living in a home that you want to bring up? I think the one thing that I have, I'm really grateful about is like my concepts being changed and allowing me to move into the home. Like I never had really considered buying a house anytime soon, but once I decided that I did want a little bit more stability, I didn't want to go back to paying rent. And I think, like I said, I've always really liked my privacy and liked being alone. And so I never considered like living with people. I wanted my own, you know, when I got a house, I was going to be by myself, but I actually, this is a duplex. So I'll be renting out the top floor and I'll be living in the basement. And so having people on my property is just, once you have your priorities in place, it's like, what, what is important to me? Well, I want to save money. I don't want to be spending a lot every month. And I want to be able to still travel and to move around and to be in the van. Now my vacation home is now the van. Uh, so, I love it. Yeah. And, you, exactly. and it, it, move, it can go anywhere you want. <laughs> right. Exactly. And since I'm planning on continuing to travel quite a bit, you know, having the house rented out while I'm not here and just living in the basement and living in a more simple place. It's like we have these concepts, like what my dream home is going to look like. But right now, like this situation my life is a lot better. My experience is a lot better. It's not about the things that I have or this white picket fence house with my own privacy and my own, you know, with my own space. It's like, well, I might not have that, but my lifestyle and the things that I have really thought about for a while, I know are my priorities. I'm able to address those things and and be in the house. So that's really really, cool. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And like, you're having like a little bit of a shift in your career as well, right? Yeah, I just started. So I've been racing professionally for almost 10 years, but I was just hired as the mountain bike marketing manager for Fuji for my bike sponsor. That's really cool. And like, what an impact that you'll get to make in the industry with that job. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's definitely my dream job. And it was feeling like the right time to make to make a change and cut for that next step. And this is like a perfect fit for me. So I get to manage the team and I'm, I'm working with younger athletes and it's exactly what I want to be doing. That's cool. It's like all the things that ha- you've been working on and, and valuing have all come to a head. Yeah, it definitely. This, these past couple months have been, I'm just really grateful for everything has worked out. It's been kind of a whirlwind, but I'm, I'm really excited. Yeah. And I have like a few more questions. Uh, one of them is, so it's really easy to get back into a situation. So like living in the van and like the simplicity and then moving back into a house And all those things that you took for granted now seem like a big deal. So how are you going to kind of continue staying in that mindset where you can still appreciate the simple things and not take things for granted and also still maintain that that level of solitude and that time for yourself? I think really sticking with like a practice of daily contemplation and and daily gratitude 
is a good way to, you know, you can, you can learn a lot of things and you can absorb a lot of different values while you're out on the road. But if you kind of just let your life take over and you don't take time to sit with those things every day, then I think that it is easy to lose them and to get distracted and to, to kind of fall back into old habits. And um, I struggle with it too. There are things that I know will make me happy. There are certain mindsets that I know I should be in and, and mental you know, exercises that, that I want to be doing. And sometimes I say, oh, my new job is distracting me or this is distracting me. And I think we all have, especially if we unplug a little bit and aren't scrolling through our phones all the time, like everyone has 30 minutes a day to kind of sit down with themselves and remind themselves what makes them happy. And I think so few people, our, our culture, it encourages people to focus on your job, on, you know, on so many different things. But we don't really encourage people to take down the time to sit with themselves and say, what's actually going to make me and the people around me happiest? And if that is your focus and you kind of remember, oh, I don't really need that to be happy. Like we're thinking about installing a dishwasher. I'm like, I've lived a long time without a dishwasher. <laughs> I don't need to add that to my things of things that I'm going to need in order to feel comfortable. Like it doesn't bother me to wash my dishes now. Like it's not going to bother me until I actually buy that dishwasher. <laughs> so if you can kind of sit and have those conversations with yourself, like what is it that makes me happy? Where do I want to put my time and my energy? I think making sure to make a daily practice of that even though it's hard to do, it's like, if you can just remind yourself that's going to continue to make you happy. And that's going to continue to keep you centered and focused on the things that matter and not just on success or on exterior things or on all the things that constantly were inundated with so many different messages from the outside. And very few of those messages are going to encourage you to focus on your own priorities or on what makes you happy. So I think one of the things is, that I would like to continue in this new life when I'm, I'm not in the van. I do have a lot of exterior things available to me is like trying to minimize being a consumer as much as possible, consuming materials, consuming media, consuming things, being more of a creator, you know, being creative and not consumptive, I mm-hmm. think is a way to keep yourself centered and keep yourself true to yourself rather than, you know, having all the exterior influences kind of throw you off course. It's funny, though, and this is kind of an interesting conundrum because I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm a creator and I don't consume as much as most people do, but we're creating things with the expectation that people will consume them. Right. It's true. <laughs> so it's kind of it's a conundrum. Hard. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, not all. I mean, there are plenty of books that I read and I think it's being like mindful of what I'm consuming. Yeah. If I'm consuming things that I actually think are gonna going to be beneficial for me, then there are, there are great things that other people can share with me, and, and people that I can learn from, and books that I can read from, and good movies. And there's definitely a lot of media that I think is positive, but then the rest of it is just filtering out the stuff that's not gonna serve me well. You know. Mm-hmm. Do you mind after we're done sending like your top five favorite books, and we can put that in the show notes for people? Absolutely. I would love that. <laughs> well, then I can read them. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's crazy. You can kind of, like all the books that I read as I was living in the van, there's like this progression from like, I'm really into science when I first moved in the van and was reading a lot about physics. And that's what I was really into. And then it just kind of went in this like crazy trajectory of just like deeper and deeper down the wormhole of, of things that I read and learned. But it opened up a lot of doors that I didn't even think I would be interested in mm-hmm. um, that, I'm, that I'm really grateful for. Cool. Well, <laughs> where's the best spot for people to connect with you? Um, probably on my Instagram. It's uh, lauren.greg. Cool. And like, I saw you posted a picture today of, is it your boyfriend? Yeah. Cool. Yes. 
yeah, I, I bet he's happy to have you around more. <laughs> yeah, he absolutely is. And that, that was one of the things that one of the key reasons I was excited to get off the road is it's been a long time, but having that stability in the community and he's been a saint with me being on the road so much for the past few years. So I'm really, really happy to be in one spot and to be living here with him. And it's a, a great light at the end of the tunnel there to, to now be able to move forward in life with him. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was, it was so good to talk to you and to be able to dig in a little bit deeper and, and learn more about you. Yeah, it was great to catch up with you, Sonia. Cool. Lauren is the best. I really loved all the books that she recommended and I had her send me a list of some other books she's read that will be in the show notes because reading and learning are things that I'm really passionate about. And if you guys are listening to this podcast, generally people listen to podcasts like this because they are curious about life. So make sure you check out the show notes. Huge shout out to my Patreon homies. Thank you so much, guys. I've seen a little bit of an uptick in people who are financially supporting my show. It really helps. It really makes a difference. So if you want to show your support, that's one way to do it. Other ways to do it are leaving a review on iTunes and sharing the show with your friends. Those all make a big difference for helping the growth of this show and just for getting the word out. I really appreciate that and it really is a privilege that I get to do this and I really enjoy whenever I hear from you guys because Man, it's awesome whenever you know that the work that you're putting in is making a difference in the world, and that is the main reason why I get up in the morning. How are things going with your New Year's resolutions if you've made them? I know that a lot of times by now people have kind of fallen off the wagon with their New Year's resolutions, and I actually encourage you guys to go back and listen to some older episodes of the show if you're struggling with goal setting. I'd find the one that I recorded with Donna Skoglin about goals and habits and creating a good routine. And I'd also check out the one called 12 Week Year with Brian P. Moran. That's something that I really love. It talks about how to manage your time and how to actually execute and break down your goals into quarters instead of years. How's the diet going, guys? I know that sometimes, especially in the wintertime, it can be hard to motivate to eat extra fruits and vegetables. But if you're looking for motivation, you are more than welcome to join the Facebook group Plant Powered Tribe with Sonia Looney. We are growing quickly and lots of people are participating, sharing their stories, sharing their recipes. And again, most of the people that belong to the group are not vegan. They don't eat a plant-based diet. They're just there because they want to figure out how to eat healthier. And while it is advantageous to eat a mostly plant-based diet, I don't actually think that everybody has to do that. I think that just adding in more fruits, vegetables, leafy greens, legumes, and all this other good stuff will help with longevity and it'll help you be a better athlete. I have a confession to make. I am back in Arizona. After not being able to go to Chile from being sick and basically here there's not much outdoor riding. You can go fat biking if the conditions lend to it, but that doesn't always happen. I had to get back outside. I had to get back out on dirt and I had to test out my brand new Scott Spark mountain bike. It's pretty awesome. So I'm excited to be riding in Phoenix and Sedona in preparation for my first race of the year, which is the Andalusia stage race in Southern Spain. I've done this race before and it was a hoot. And did you know that Andalusia 
is famous for creating the majority of the olive oil in the world. I assume that was in Italy, but when I was there last time, I learned that it was in Spain. So I'm trying my best to get caught up with my fitness after missing three weeks. It was really frustrating. And if you haven't listened to my show talking about my own personal self-doubt, I did a little off-the-cuff podcast on a weekend about that. So I'm trying to get caught up in my fitness and I'm just gonna show up and just do the best I can and have a great time and a great experience. And lastly, I want to thank our podcast sponsor, Health IQ. It's really awesome to have a podcast sponsor. Um, it really helps a lot. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for athletes and health conscious people like us. Life insurance is one of those things that we all need as adults, hashtag adulting, but Health IQ actually helps us save money when we take care of ourselves. And I think that's pretty cool. They have an online quiz and also look at things like your Strava or even your health app to check out your activity levels and also ask about your diet to assess where you would qualify. People save up to 33% on life insurance. So if you want to get a quote and compare it to what you're already paying, go to healthiq.com Sonia or mention the promo code Sonia when you talk to a Health IQ agent. That's it, guys. We're going to wrap it up now, but wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you right back here next week.